What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, August 19th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with co-host CJ Bonifati. Hello, CJ. Hello, Matt. Hello, world. Super happy to be back on The Planet Today, your go-to podcast for environmental news. Boy, it feels like a homecoming. Speaking of homecoming, this is uh, this is your first episode in the new studio. We'll call it. Yeah, the new. Yeah, we'll call it the studio. Uh, and, and for those of you who uh, follow the planet today on social media, perhaps one of my hot takes uh, will be featured, and you'll be able to see my lovely new abode. But yes, I'm a I'm a Connecticuter now. Uh, I know that that may come to a surprise to some, but. It is the reality of my situation. Well, I'm sure uh, I'm sure the state knows how lucky it is to have you already. Congrats on the new house. And uh, yeah, let's get right into this. planet today we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way monday and friday time for our quick hits the first one is by thomas byshevel dan murtow rajesh kumar sin of bloomberg they write coal giants are making mega profits as climate crisis grips the world coal is the dirtiest of all fossil fuels Every ounce of coal we use produces more greenhouse gas emissions than any other fuel source. Temperatures are rising rapidly, the climate crisis is here, and coal giants are still making a ton of money. This is one of the major downsides of Russia's invasion of Ukraine from an energy supply standpoint. Buying Russian gas fuels Putin's war efforts, so that energy needs to come from somewhere else. Most of the world has been more dependent on coal in the last several months due to this problem. Glencore PLC, a coal producer, reported its earnings from coal increased by almost 900% to $8.9 billion, with a B, billion in the first half of 2022. That's more than Nike and Starbucks made in a full year. And you know how we feel about Nike and Starbucks. <laughs> the world's number one coal producer, India Limited, saw their profits, profits nearly triple. And Chinese companies producing half of the world's coal saw first half profits more than double. The main problem here, aside from the fact that you know we're emitting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere through burning coal, is that these record profits make it more enticing for investors to fund future coal projects. Making more money on these projects is going to make it harder to phase out coal entirely, which is something that we really needed to do decades ago. This is a huge turnaround in the wrong direction from last November, when world leaders almost signed a deal to entirely phase out coal during COP26. The authors write that coal's advocates say the fuel remains the best way to provide cheap and reliable baseload power, especially in developing countries. Despite the huge renewable rollout, burning coal remains the world's favorite way to make power, accounting for 35% of all electricity. Yeah, this is uh, this is this is tough news because you know 
it comes at a time where, like we said, we really needed to phase out coal a while ago and to see that they're still making so much money. It's, uh, it's, it's very discouraging because every single dollar they make is a dollar that's not being spent on solar and wind and hydro and nuclear and all those energy sources that aren't going to be actively emitting carbon dioxide into the air. So yeah, this was a uh, this was pretty sobering. I don't I don't root for people to be in poverty, but I definitely root for coal producing power plants to uh, not make money. Yeah, I I mean it's like the great modern philosophers uh, Wu Wu Tang Clan once said, "Cash rules everything around me." Cream. Yeah, get get that money. Uh, burn a, a ton of coal though, uh, and that that's the issue. The reality is we live in a capitalistic society, mm-hmm. and as long as these people keep making money, they're going to keep doing it. So, um, I mean, know who I feel real bad for? I feel real bad for, like, the coal miners, right? Like, yeah. How much you want to bet they got, like, like a 5% rate? If that. If that. You know what I mean? Their, their company profits are flying through the roof. They're down there literally destroying their bodies to mine this rock from the earth. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting a, a fair slice of the cake. So while uh, I can confidently say F the coal companies, all my homies hate coal companies. Shout out to those those workers who are who are uh, doing whatever they can to put food on the table. Um, you know, r- rise up, question mark. I don't really know if that will ever be a thing, but uh, it, it, it's, it all goes back to the problem of capitalism yeah these people make money they don't share the money and then they bribe politicians to keep making money we are very pro worker here we are also very pro workers rights and uh yeah part of that is is being anti-coal ceos probably making hundreds of millions of dollars while their employees maybe got a five percent raise over the past year so and hopefully that discussion explains why we're anti-Nike and Starbucks people, too. <laughs> Maybe that explains, I don't have to go into detail on that. Our next story is from the New York Times, where Henry Fountain writes, Arctic warming is happening faster than described, analysis shows. Researchers in Finland found that the Arctic is warming roughly four times faster than the global average, which is a definitive sign of ongoing climate change. The previously accepted estimate was two to three times faster than the global average, so this report is pretty grim news. Some parts of the region, including Barents Sea, north of Norway and Russia, are warming up to seven times faster than average. Atmospheric scientist Menvendra K. Duby of the Los Alamos National Laboratory said, this report means that we have to measure Arctic warming much better and all the time. We're currently at the precipice of many tipping points, like the total loss of Arctic sea ice in the summers. Fountain writes that the studies serve as a sharp reminder that humans continue to burn fossil fuels and pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at rates that are dangerously heating the planet and unleashing extreme weather. Researchers say that if the rate of warming in the Arctic continues to speed up, the influence on global weather could worsen. This would create a need for new climate modeling to reflect the warming Arctic. Fountain explains Arctic amplification really well here by writing, The Arctic is heating more rapidly, in large part because of a feedback loop in which warming melts sea ice in the region, which exposes more of the Arctic Ocean to sunlight and leads to more warming, which in turn leads to even more melting and warming and melting and warming and so on and so forth. Yeah, and the article also sums up the impacts of losing sea ice by listing 
It puts polar bears in jeopardy, which in turn affects the well-being of people who have hunted them for centuries. I'd also add that polar bears being the apex predators of their ecosystem, it puts the rest of the ecosystem in jeopardy of being overrun by those animals that are lower on that food chain. Number two, sailing routes that were once perpetually choked with ice are opening up, which brings the environmental risks of oceans shipping to pristine water. Shorelines are eroding more quickly, and more permafrost is thawing, leading to increased greenhouse gas emissions and damaging Arctic infrastructure. So losing sea ice isn't just bad because of rising sea levels. Like, there are a number of local environmental issues that would also amplify climate change in the Arctic. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people probably think, oh, so what? The sea goes up a few feet. Big whoop. The ocean's been there. It, it, it could get bigger. It could get smaller. What do I care about the ocean? But those same people are probably wondering why there's mm -hmm. more frequent hurricanes, why our winters have been so brutal with the snow and sleet. Um, this is all because there is more water for these storm systems to, to go ahead and grab. Um, once that water, or ice rather, melts in the Arctic, it's not going to stay in the Arctic. It's going to find its way down uh, to the, the tropics where it will be picked up by uh, mm -hmm. even greater storms. So uh, this is an everywhere problem because we all deal with weather. It's causing hotter summers and brutal winters and devastating hurricane and tornado seasons. So this should be something that we could all unite around it. Yeah, Ho hopefully. I mean, I don't know if you saw this recently, but I think it was like two weeks ago on, on Twitter, something went viral and, and Snopes had to fact check it. It was like, hey, people who believe in climate change, explain this for sea level rise. And it was a picture of some building in like Sydney, Australia's harbor 100 years ago. And the sea level was at the same point, And Snopes was like, yes, just so we are perfectly clear. High tide and low tide is a real thing. The picture on top was taken at high tide. This was now taken at low tide. So, like, yeah, it's it's going to fluctuate, and you're going to see pictures that kind of, quote-unquote, disprove sea level rise. But, like, all it takes is a basic understanding of, I don't know, going to the beach once <laughs> and, and thinking critically about if you go at different times of the day, the ocean will get higher up on the sand. Like, that's happening globally. So... Sea level rise, very, very real issue. Um, do your job to, to fact check anyone who's saying that it's not going on. Yeah, and, and we here at the planet today are here to tell you that the tides are real and the moon does exist. Yeah, hot take. <laughs> There's the first one of the day, hot take. The moon is real. So even with the Inflation Reduction Act that was signed into law by President Biden, um, set to reduce emissions by 40%, by the end of this decade, the United States is still very far from our goal of net zero by 2050. And unfortunately, the same can be said about many other countries. Let's say most other countries. The planet has already warmed by 1.1 degrees Celsius since the Industrial Revolution. So continuing to emit carbon makes the 1.5 or even the 2.0 degree goals extremely, extremely challenging. It's starting to seem more and more likely that the fight we're fighting is less how do we prevent the climate from changing uh, in extreme and drastic measures over our lifetime and becoming how do we mitigate it, um, mm -hmm. which is sad. Uh, it's really sad. But 
you know, thankfully this law was signed. I didn't personally go through the entirety of the bill, but uh, from what I've read, it seems like it will um, help and is a step in the right direction. But we could always be doing more, especially as a, a world leader to set the standard of, hey, this is what it's going to take to get us to where we need to be. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not a perfect bill. There are issues I have with it, but it's a hell of a lot better than what we had two weeks ago. I can tell you that much. Yep. All right. The next quick hit is titled Leaders Make Fifth Attempt to Pass UN Oceans Treaty by Esme Stollard at BBC News Climate and Science. Right. And as we've talked about in previous episodes of the show, the world's oceans and the wildlife within need to be protected from risks like pollution, climate change, overfishing, and shipping traffic. Uh, Hopefully that's where the UN High Seas Treaty comes into play. If signed, this treaty would put 30% of the world's oceans into conservation areas by 2030. 30% of the world's oceans. This is pretty important since only 1.2% of international waters, so all, that's where all countries have a right to fish, ship, do research there, uh, only 1.2% of international waters are protected. To make things a bit more pressing, recently a study from NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, suggests that between 10% and 15% of marine species are already at risk of extinction. The thing is, though, that the UN High Seas Treaty has been through 10 years of negotiations, but is yet to be signed. I'm thinking the reason that this took so long is the same reason that most climate agreements take so long to sign. And that's because the people who have all of the leverage forget about the people who need the most help. So in this case, we're talking about our small island nations, and those are those that have the most impact by sea level rise, right? They're going to be the closest to those beautiful coral reefs that are all over tropical islands, you know, the the waters outside of those tropical islands. Those are the people who, it's a smaller island, they're going to have to import a lot of their energy, a lot of their food. So they are really not doing as much industrial damage to the water, to the atmosphere. But they are heavily, heavily impacted by the decisions of, in this case, your countries that are really impacting the oceans. So your plastic producing countries, your countries that have a ton of industrial waste. And it's really easy in this case to be a country in power like the United States, like Japan, like Canada, like the European Union, like the UK, like China, and say, no, you know, we're not going to reduce what we're doing here. We're not going to protect these waters because we're doing fine. But this is a global problem that requires a global solution. Yeah, and you know me, I'm a big TV trope guy. I love me some TV tropes. One of my favorite TV tropes is the the, the right away of international waters, right? It seems like <laughs> whenever something needs to happen and the legality of it is questionable, the morality is in that gray area, they're just going to go do it in international waters. Shout out to Morbius. Uh, it's Morbin time. It is Morbin and, time. And, 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 you know, let, let's, let's, let's hear from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Um, they put it a little more uh, gracefully than I do. Uh, they say... Traditional, uh, it's the traditional fragmented nature of ocean governance, uh, which has prevented the effective protection of the high seas. So the goal with this treaty is to place parts of the world's oceans into a network of marine protected areas. Hopefully this will make managing the ocean easier by making everything the same unit when it comes to environmental impact assessments, or EIAs. 
thinking big picture about the treaty, these marine protected areas and EIAs are absolutely critical when it comes to things like deep sea mining. So deep sea mining is when minerals are taken from the seabed that is 200 meters or below the surface. These minerals include cobalt, which is used for electronics, um, but the process could be toxic for marine life, according to the IUCN. Yeah, and, and it's something that's very similar to a process that more of us might be more familiar with when it comes to fracking. So a lot of times the externalities or the, the third party impacts are not really factored in very well when it comes to environmental impact assessments. So in this case, we're looking at a process that can become toxic for marine life. But like I said, it's very similar to fracking where you're getting that oil out of the ground. But the externality is that it's impacting the water supplies nearby. And the people who live in those communities around fracking sites do not have clean water. They traditionally have higher rates of childhood illnesses and respiratory diseases, all from being located closely to that. So what's really important when it comes to environmental impact assessments is factoring in those third party things that aren't, you know, a direct impact, right? So the cost of healthcare rising in these communities is not a direct impact. It's a secondary impact, but that needs to be factored in more. So in this case, when we're talking about deep sea mining, you know, the, the process itself being toxic is one thing, but those toxins spreading out and impacting your food chain, this all plays a huge role in protecting the ocean. One other piece to this treaty being finalized is including points that give developing and landlocked nations more equal access to marine genetic resources, or MGR. MGR are biological materials from plants and animals in the ocean that can have benefits for society, like pharmaceuticals, uh, industrial processes, and food. But progress on passing the UN Oceans Treaty has been slow because of, you know, this little pandemic we got going on, preventing countries from meeting. And also countries have disagreed over what should be included in the legal treaty. Who would think that people have different opinions on how things <laughs> should be done? Uh, the good news, though, the good news is that countries have agreed uh, to a final fifth session to try and sign the treaty with a deadline set for the end of the year. At the end of the last round, of negotiations, conference president Rena Lee said, I believe that with continued commitment, determination, and dedication, we will be able to build bridges and close the remaining gaps. So some positive news coming out at the end. Yeah, and you know, getting to an agreement with protecting these high seas ecosystems is really important for a multitude of reasons. So number one, there's not a lot of research that's being done there and possible species that have been yet to be discovered you know, it's possible that they can go extinct without protection. Number two, it's important for human populations, as so many people rely on the seas for food, for income, and for leisure activities. And number three, global marine ecosystems are estimated to be worth more than 41 trillion pounds, according to the Plymouth Marine Laboratory, which if you're going to convert that to American dollars, that's a lot of American dollars. So with that, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have two more quick hits for you.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, everyone. Next up, climate activists fill golf holes with cement after water ban exemption by Merlin Thomas of BBC News. So in the French city of Toulouse, and no, I did not have to look up the pronunciation of Toulouse during the break, a climate activism group targeted what they call the leisure industry of the most privileged by filling golf course holes with cement. Golf courses were recently exempt from water bans in France as the country experiences severe drought. Golf officials say that their greens would die in roughly three days without water. Oh, the calamity. Currently, there are around 100 French villages that do not have enough drinking water, Mr. Golfman. I'm just going to put a little caveat into this. For all of uh, our disc golfers out there, we're talking about ball golf, (laughs) the, the lesser of the two sports. I'm not wearing a country club hat right now. (laughs) <laughs> you I'm absolute not, one percenter I, i'm not playing golf tomorrow i can guarantee that <laughs> so the protest was claimed by the local division of extinction rebellion and petition said that the exemption for golf courses showed that quote economic madness takes precedence over ecological reason there are people in france who cannot use water for their gardens who cannot wash their cars right now but Golf courses are kind of in a business-as-usual situation. Yeah, across two-thirds of France, a state of crisis has been declared, with rainfall down by 85% in some places. The water bans were established at the national level, but enforcement of the bans is handled regionally. Only one area in western France has banned watering golf courses. The mayor of Grenoble City, Eric Piole. Sorry, French people, I'm so sorry. Said the exemption for golf courses continues to protect the rich and powerful. That's kind of how it always goes, right? Like the people who are in the most privileged positions are usually going to be fine. Like we talk about Jeff Bezos. He's going to be fine if this whole planet starts to burn down because of climate change, because he can just afford to buy a house up on a hill somewhere where we're not impacted by sea level rise and he can spend whatever he needs to to get food for his family. But the people that are kind of in the the least advantageous positions are the ones who are going to be impacted the hardest. Now, I'm generalizing here, but typically people who are in like very wealthy country clubs are very wealthy themselves. So I could totally see why people who don't have clean drinking water right now in their villages or in their towns 
are pissed off that golf courses are allowed to keep watering their greens just because they brought in a bunch of non-native grasses to to look good and putt good. Yeah, I, I, I love golf. I do love golf. But I like living on Earth more than I like so, CJ, you said that you love golf. You said that you love living on this planet. Yes. Would, would you like to make a statement about LIV, the, the Saudi Arabian golf tour right now? Um, I, I stand with uh, my, my pal Tiger Woods when I say, heck him. And, and I stand with my pal Rory McIlroy, who I've spoken to one time in person, who is currently still in the PGA. Yeah. Heck him. Heck him, heck him right to heck. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. So... There are some restrictions on golf courses, at least, and you know, watering must be done at night with no more than 30% of the typical volume of water. But I'm going to be honest, I kind of have my doubts here because who is checking on this to make sure that the golf courses aren't just watering what they need to keep the greens alive? Um, but again, this is up to local municipalities to, uh, to enforce. So we'll see. I mean, I hope that the, the water shortage in, in a lot of areas in France is, is resolved soon so that the golf courses can keep running now so the people can have water again all right it's our last quick hit of the week and it is by justin westbrook easy name on the last one we got an easy <laughs> name justin westbrook of motor trend who writes electric vehicles are way way more energy efficient than internal combustion vehicles this is pretty relevant given the current price of gas which i will say is at least much less than it was a month ago um, so only about 20% of the gas that you purchase at the pump to power your car actually goes into getting that car moving. The other 80% is wasted on heat and parasitic auxiliary components that draw energy away, according to this article. Westbrook writes, the good news is electric vehicles are far more efficient on the road. Yale Climate Connections made a visual that's posted in this article, and it shows that 68 Eight to seventy-two percent of gas is lost to engine losses, just inefficiencies, and only around sixteen to twenty-five percent really goes to moving the wheels of the car. These losses are felt in the heat that an engine produces, which can be felt on the hood of a car. EVs, on the other hand, only lose about eleven percent of energy, which is actually pretty interesting given how electric vehicles work. So, ten percent of the energy goes to charging loss. 18% goes to drivetrain losses, 3% goes to powertrain cooling and steering, and another half percent goes to auxiliary electricity use. So I am not a math guy, we know this, but some basic math will tell you that that means on average, an EV loses 31 to 35% of its energy while moving, which is more than the 11% that we said. Here's the kicker. EVs also have regenerative braking, which captures around 22% of energy loss. So that's where that 11% comes from. So all in all, uh, 87 to 91% quick maths of energy used on an electric vehicle goes to actually getting the wheels to move the car. It's a pretty important part of the, the whole process. The article gets into energy supply as well and determined that if our electrical grid was 100% powered by coal, 31% less energy would be needed to charge EVs than to fuel gasoline cars. That demand is cut in half by switching the grid to natural gas. Half. Yeah, and then once you add renewables into the mix, up to three quarters of our current energy use for gasoline cars can be saved. Anytime we're talking about 75% savings on anything... That's a good thing. So 
next time you're thinking about getting a new car, you know, if your financial situation allows it, EVs will be a hell of a lot more efficient than traditional cars. And the good news with the IRA being signed, EVs are gonna get a lot more affordable. And further good news, with just the way that the market is currently trending, there's gonna be a lot more EVs for purchase in the next decade because almost every single automobile manufacturer has said that its entire fleet is going to be electric by 2030, 2035, or 2040. So it's a good time to get into this whole electric vehicle trend. My next car will definitely be electric, I'll tell you that much. Even if my financial situation doesn't allow for it. I'm going into debt to save the planet, people. <laughs> Mine too. I just don't know when my next car will be because uh, I'm, a, I'm a mass transit boy right now. I love you, New York City subway. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you, you little city slicker over there. You're really saving the planet. You don't even have a car. I do have a podcast, though. So, <laughs> so, so you win some, you lose some. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we will be airing my interview with Rob Rastovich. Yeah, Rob's a cool dude. His company recently launched a product called Thermic.ai that helps decrease food waste. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter if you're so inclined, at Matt Norton. Today's episode was co-hosted by CJ Bonafati. CJ, where can people keep up with you? Uh, you know, Twitter, Twitch, all that stuff. But what I really want to say is election season's coming up. Don't support me. Find a grassroots local politician to throw your support behind because we can make all of this stuff happen from the ground up. So screw me. I'm not important. Go find somebody important to support. Hell yeah. Absolutely love that. Make sure you're voting in, in literally every election that you can. Giselle Herrera helped write this episode. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music. Reminder to go check him out at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Bye!